Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode. And today's a fun one. We have a first time guest, someone whose work has really caught my eye. He has a somewhat similar background to me. So maybe that's a part of the reason for the interest, but recently wrote a very, very interesting kind of overview article on the concept of feel. Feel in basketball, feel on the court, um, feel as it pertains to player development coming up through uh, levels as you get higher and higher all the way to the NBA. And so today, that's what I want to talk about with him. Um, Evan Zaucha, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Ben. Great to be here. Um, It's really cool to be on the Thinking Basketball podcast as somebody who read your book. And that was kind of the launching point for really changing how I think about the game and kind of um, uh, a big point in... uh, a big point in my life where I kind of decided to apply my background to basketball. Yeah. So I, I, a, thanks for the plug. Um, B before we jump into feel, why don't you really quickly kind of give us an understanding of what that background is? Uh, how did you end up writing a very long detailed kind of summary about the neurological effects of feel where you've got, you know, words like myelination and fancy neuronal diagrams in the article. Um, what What is that background and how does it connect to hoops? Yeah, sure. So um, I grew up just a little bit south of Chicago. Uh, I'm a diehard, lifelong Chicago Bulls fan, which has been painful in recent years. But uh, on the whole, things are pretty good. You know, I grew up in the Jordan years as a 90s kid, so kind of hard to distance yourself from that. Um, but, uh, as I went through my life, I always really loved science. Um, and so I decided to go to school for, um, basically a neuroscience, uh, degree, but, um, my school, University of Illinois, shout out Illini, uh, didn't have a formal neuroscience program. So I kind of made my own degree. Um, I combined a molecular and cellular biology degree and a psychology degree. Um, but where I really kind of got into a lot of this neuroscience stuff, especially from a developmental perspective, is um, I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to work in an undergraduate research lab um, during basically my whole undergraduate career. Um, and so I worked in a lab where we focused a lot on neurodevelopment, um, especially from younger ages, basically starting at birth um, and kind of how uh, that development is affected by introduction of um, different chemicals, basically different different toxicological chemicals. I never really thought of the two as going hand in hand, you know, neuroscience and basketball. But I think what I love so much about neuroscience is if you understand the brain, you you really kind of understand human beings, um, or at least you have a better understanding, I think. Um, obviously, there's some things we can't know. Yeah, they're, they're difficult to understand, these human beings. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yep. Yeah, and we, we keep learning every day. But um, I, I think d- applying neuroscience to basketball is kind of just a logical next step for me. Um, you know, as somebody who's kind of gotten into draft scouting more and more in the past the past few years, you see people defining all these skills and subskills in such complex and detailed technical ways. 
Um, but the the skills that I always thought were kind of glossed over or just approached at a higher level were feel and basketball IQ. So my hope was to kind of apply my background to defining those in a more concrete and explicit way. Yeah. And I think that's where I really, uh, you know, am excited and interested about the work that you're doing and the and the approach and the things you're laying out, um, at least in this uh, initial sort of overview of these concepts, because I have the same kind of bias from my background, right, where I look at a lot of these things, for instance, the idea of athleticism, I feel like the kind of neurological processing component that A, is directly connected to what we think of as physical explosive athleticism, and B, things that we don't think of as physical athleticism, but, you know, processing speed, or in my videos, you'll hear me say, mapping the court, and things like that, like the, the ability for your brain to hold things in sort of a spatial capacity, and then interact with them out in space. You know, these are really, really important skills in most team athletics, And I think especially in basketball and then to that point that you just made developmentally, it's a huge thing when we look at prospects, right? Thinking about what someone has learned and how much more they kind of have to plug into that process as they grow and the capacity to grow and how we can kind of foster that and engender that um, in developing players in the sport. Yeah, and it's it's definitely going to be a process. Um, I, I appreciate that you you described it as kind of like a high level overview because that's exactly what I was going for is kind of an introduction to the topic, um, kind of just apply or rather define my more explicit criteria. And the hope in the future is obviously to build on these topics um, to a greater extent and really flesh this out into something that can be used as a developmental framework and an assessment framework too um, from a scouting perspective. Um, but yeah, I mean, you hit it right on the head. Feel feel really kind of governs all of these things. Um, you know, not just not just the way you think about the game, but um, how you direct yourself to make movements on the court. Um, processing speed, pattern recognition, and proprioception are really kind of your brain's ability to tell you where to go, how to get there, and how much time you have. So yeah. um, I think there's a lot more work to be done in the field, obviously. But I, I hope I was able to offer a good introduction at least. No, agree, agree completely, and I think we'll get to some of those specifics a little bit more in a second, but we've talked around it for a few minutes. Let's just start by getting your definition of feel. We hear it all the time. We hear it used sometimes interchangeably with basketball IQ. How would you describe what this concept of feel actually is? Yeah, so I think my preliminary definition of what I would consider feel or basketball IQ um, is really just kind of um, a player's ability to perceive stimuli around them, uh, take into account all these variables and be constantly updating the position and the movement of those variables. So obviously players and the ball um, being the keys there. So um, subconsciously and consciously onboarding this information and then using the information either subconsciously or consciously to make decisions about what you're going to do next on the court. And uh, I think important to ad- uh, add on to that, I guess, is that all of this needs to happen in what I would call a time-efficient manner. So obviously the NBA game flies at an absolute breakneck pace, um, and so the ability to make all these decisions in in a timely manner is going to be hugely important because obviously it's great to be able to make the right passing read, but if you, by the time you've determined what the right passing read is, um, that window's gone, then it's not as helpful. So should we think of this as something that is sort of... Um, a meta skill that sits on top of 
basically everything else that's happening in the game or is it is it its own kind of node at the end of the tree if you will is it a, is it a separate thing that sits next to dribbling and shooting and uh, other components like that how 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 would you kind of view this as it relates to other skills that's a really good question and i don't think i've determined really my stance on it yet but where i'm leaning right now is kind of that I, I consider feel to almost be its own node to some extent in that it's developed differently from other skills, but it's, I wouldn't call it independent at all because it's so synergistic with every skill, right? Like your ability to determine whether something is a good decision or not and to execute that action um, and, and really act on that decision kind of is the underlying framework behind a, a lot of different sub skills. So um, whether it be uh, dribbling, um, you know, you could, you perceive the footwork and the stance and the the center of gravity of your defender. And that kind of de- decides how you're going to counter, how you're going to dribble, what moves you're going to apply, um, how you use the screen and stuff like that is just one example. But obviously it extends to passing on ball defense, uh, especially off ball defense. Um, so it's, it's kind of, in its way, in its own way, it's a separate skill, but it's it's integral to all the other skills too. Hmm, that's interesting. Um, I I too have not really decided where I land on this, um, given my understanding of the concept. But you you definitely just broach something that I think is worth drilling into here before we move on. I think a lot of people think of feel as largely related to decision-making within the team concept context. But you just came up with an example where if someone has, you know, incredible quote-unquote feel in a one-on-one context, then their ability to make a decision about where to put their foot, what to do with the ball, um, when to cross over, when to counter versus, hey, someone's leaning in a certain direction. One area I see it a lot these days on film study is like, not using the screen and rejecting it and just the feel for the way like the defense either either one or both defenders in the pick and roll are leaning as you set up that move um is that fair to say that you're thinking about feel as something that encompasses both on ball one-on-one stuff and off ball team stuff yeah, I would say that's definitely fair. Um, I think feel portrays itself in just about every aspect of the game, and I think it's it's really critical for those one-on-one matchups. And you see the highest level uh, primary initiators kind of be able to have their defender on a string in more ways than one, and you're you're always keeping them guessing. So um, the I think that's why it was important that I noted that it, feel is not just conscious, right? It's also subconscious. Um, some of these calculations your brain is doing, uh, some of these perceptions um, that you're that you're seeing and acting on, uh, you may not even consciously note that they're happening. Like, you know, I'm not coming up the court with the ball in my hand and noting how the defender is leaning. I probably don't have time for that at the NBA level, um, but it, it's important. And I think it, the best players, you can see it um, in how they manipulate defenders. So as we're talking through this, this sort of leads me to this question. Is it worthwhile then to separate sort of one-on-one or on-ball feel for these kinds of decisions that you and I just laid out where you're coming up the court or you're feeling the way a defender's leaning or things like that versus feel that requires an individual to start mapping multiple things out in space, right? You see what I'm saying? Should we make a distinction then in talking about a player's feel for certain moves in a one-on-one setting versus sort of um, 
plays or decisions that require two or three players and the ball and timing up everything in that in that context. Yeah, I think it's fair to split them up at least to some extent. I mean, it depends how how deep you want to get into those assessments. Like if if I'm just watching your standard game, I'm probably not going to split up um split those up too much in my first watch of a prospect, but as I kind of start to get the feel for for a guy's game and the decisions he makes, his general tendencies, I think I would probably categorize those as as two separate things, but they're they're both equally important obviously. And, and, I, I, w- I would like to do more work on this, um, especially in the dribbling sphere, because I think dribbling is where it's best portrayed. Dribbling is such a game of uh, of perception and then counter and then recounter. Um, you, you know, it's just a one on one duel um, between a ball handler and the defender trying right. to to take away his favorite spots. Right. Um, and so I think I the 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 split between the two is helpful for me personally. Yeah. And just to be clear, I when I say should we split them? What I'm really asking is, are these different dimensions? Are these perpendicular dimensions where we can find players who have really, really good, quote, you know, quote unquote, good feel in one area, but not the other? In a sense, they are relying on slightly different overall processes to drive them, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I think that's totally fair. And uh, I think to foreshadow a little, we'll get into some more examples of that later because uh, I have a couple ideas of guys in mind that fit that description pretty well, really. Um, Although I will say, I think uh, I'm coming around a little bit more to the idea that those players that are a little more a little more adept, I guess, at um, kind of those subconscious elements of feel kind of more that on ball stuff in the one on one situations um, I think sometimes they don't get the credit for being high feel or high basketball IQ players um, because they're maybe not making those high level passing decisions or they're falling asleep off ball on defense. But um, I'm starting to think that it's quite possible that those subconscious decision making abilities and kind of those more one on one situations can really be extrapolated to to more team dynamics later on um, if the team is willing to kind of foster those and give the player chances to make mistakes. Hmm. That's that's interesting. Um, I agree with you completely, by the way. That's one of the reasons why I thought of it. I think a lot of players who are great in that, you know, ball on a string, instinct for when to change direction, that kind of quote-unquote feel, uh, rarely ever get credit for having the sort of um, floor mapping, help defense, team IQ feel. And I, I, we, I guess we'll circle back to it in a little bit. I'm fascinated to see how you see them going together potentially because my assumption is that if you are a player who has not worked in one area um, or I got to rephrase this because it's not technically correct. If you've had certain patterns ingrained in one area like help defense or uh, pick and roll reads or something like that, then you might be someone who we classify as having poor feel in that area but you've really spent a lot of time developing these robust kind of uh, mental feedback loops in building up your, hey, this guy's, you know, it's all subconscious at that point. It's automatic. This guy's leaning a little to the right. So that's why I'm going to cross back over to the to the left um, and so on and so forth. This kind of like on ball one on one feel. Yeah. And I think as we get into kind of my my kind of scientific subsets of what of what I portrayed as how I would define feel, I guess I think people will start to see the parallels between maybe a guy who's 
good on ball and uh, both the offensive and defensive phases of play, um, but maybe doesn't get credit for that high level basketball IQ in the in the the team sense, like you said. Um, but really, I think at the end of the day, those those attributes that comprise ability in both subsex subsections are really kind of the same. Um, it's just a different application of the same tools. We are sitting here talking about feel, and sometimes I don't feel like cooking or planning dinner, and that's where HelloFresh comes in so handy. See, see what I did there, that transition? Uh, the, the way it works is you go to the site, you select from a variety of different options that you want. So it could be low-calorie meals you're looking for, it could be family-friendly meals, it could be vegetarian meals. Have it ordered, and then it's just shipped right to your front door, which is super easy. You open it up. And it's packed up in all these nice organized packages with cards that walk you through how to make a meal in usually 20 or 30 minutes. It's pretty time accurate in my experience. And I love how easy it is to walk through these things. So if you're really comfortable in the kitchen and you love cooking, you can spruce the dish up with whatever you have at home or something like that. But otherwise, it helps you kind of get comfortable and see how easy assembling certain meals at home can be, especially the way they're all pre-assembled and the ingredients are in there for you and so much of the prep is done. It's tasty, it's fun, and it's environmentally friendly because it's more efficient than having to go to a grocery store and the way they have to keep all the food at the grocery store and all the energy required for that and the packaging. This way, according to a University of Michigan study, uh, the same meals through HelloFresh have a 25% smaller carbon footprint. So not only is it easy and fun, but it also helps out the environment. And if you go to hellofresh.com slash thinkingbasketball10, remember the 10, because you're going to get 10 free meals, hellofresh.com slash thinkingbasketball10 right now for 10 free meals, including free shipping. It's a great deal. It's a lot of fun. And it's a fantastic way to support this show. Hellofresh.com slash thinkingbasketball10. 10. So let's get to those. Um, there's at least three big ones that I noticed in the article that you laid out. And I would agree, by the way, I couldn't think of any others. This certainly seems like a, a nice um, sort of triumvirate of subskills to look at. Pattern recognition, visual processing speed, and proprioception. Quickly talk through um, how you see those playing in this dance and how they fit together and what they are. Yeah. So to start off with pattern recognition, um, I kind of define that as the ability to not only perceive all these visual stimulus. um, So we talked about this before, and I think there's a pretty good illustrative example of it. Um, Pattern recognition to me is the ability to perceive all other all the nine other players on on the court um, where the ball is and constantly be updating that heuristic, that that mental on court mapping um, of where everyone else is and how they're moving, where they might be next. Um, and then I think I I think it's also important to kind of take into account um, the the pa- the way past experience informs how you're processing that information, um, because kind of the idea of templating past experience and applying solutions that have worked in the past I think is really important to kind of skill development and skill acquisition. Um, quick aside, did you want me to go into visual processing speed, or did you want to talk more about pattern recognition before we do? Um, no, you can go ahead. Okay, cool. Uh, and then visual processing speed. So obviously you're taking into account all this information. Um, the way that you're onboarding all that information is through visual perception. So 
you're you're panning the court, um, you're looking around, um, you're updating your map of where players are, where the ball is, and where people are going, um, and kind of just informing, you know, the visual processing re- is really your ability to um, take all that information in and start to make start to make decisions based off of it. Um, so that's kind of the the information acquisition um, step, I guess, of the of the process. Uh, and then proprioception um, is, I think, one of the biggest ones, um, and it especially it especially factors in um, that processing speed element because proprioception is your ability to kind of perceive where your own body is in space and plan executive actions based off that. So a good basketball example is that I kind of touched on in the article. Um, you perceive that a passing window is open. That's visual processing and pattern recognition. You know, in the past, um, just, you know, from past experience about how long that window might be open. Um, proprioception is your ability to decide, okay, I've taken into account all this information. My brain has processed it, processed it. These things have happened in the past. Uh, how much space do I have and how much time do I have to get into that window with my handle? Um, I think proprioception does a pretty good job of, of explaining that phase of play. Yeah, I, I think that one um, really pops up to me in a fascinating way with defensive rotations at the rim, where the the salient examples for me are some players need to react earlier to get there earlier, but once you are a really high-level rim protector and you're used to making this rotation, you can be a little slower than other players, and you can even wait a slight, you know, a beat longer or something if you have an understanding of how your body moves in space and when you're going to arrive with your length and your jumping and basically that entire package. Uh, and, and I think for things like that, the term that's kind of thrown around a lot is timing, right? Like, oh, I'm watching film and I see someone and they have good timing. But to me, it's largely this dance that you're laying out where you recognize something you process the input, you're making a decision on your output, and that decision is going to be slightly different based on how you know your own body moves in space, basically. Yeah, and I like that you touched on processing speed and kind of the ability to make these reads and decide what action you're going to take based off that information as almost kind of like a push-pull exercise with with what I like to call tools, like the physical ability. Um, because, and you've seen it in the past in the way that teams used to scout players in the draft and kind of how the more the emphasis now. Um, in the past, teams kind of seem to look for guys with just crazy tools, like just absolute freak athleticism, yep. with the idea that they could develop the feel component later. And I think we can touch on this obviously later, but I think feel is developable for sure. It's just harder to develop that late in the game. Um, so what teams have kind of trended towards more nowadays is we'll take the guy who can make the decisions and bet on the ability to develop those tools because, um, really feel and, and tools are kind of working in inverse. Uh, and what you lack in the ability to make quick decisions, you might be able to make up for in your ability to get to the spot quicker. You don't have to recognize it as soon if you can make that action much more quickly. Right, 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 Um, right. But we've definitely seen kind of a kind of a shift towards valuing feel more, which um, I, I think is probably the right call. Like just draft guys who are good at basketball. It's, it's as easy as that, right? Yeah. Let's um, let's come back to the development stuff because there's, I think, a lot more there that I want to get into. But staying with the paradigm that we're working in, pattern recognition, visual processing speed, proprioception, the things we're talking about. With pattern recognition, this is a huge concept, I think, in a lot of 
research that I've seen on expertise. Expertise is sort of my introduction to this when I was in graduate school. Uh, a lot of uh, quote unquote expertise literature is on anything from chess to you know tennis players or golf swings or things like that. And basically, this idea that as you become um, more well suited for the actual thing you're trying to do, in this case, play basketball or read a pick and roll or something like that, your mind can automate the speed of these processes. You get into this a little bit in terms of the the neurochemistry of what's actually happening. But as you see them over and over again, your mind will start to, I had a professor once who said, um, sends them down the information superhighway and not the internet, but like everything is getting fast tracked in your brain and your nervous system out to your muscles. And so I think the big thing there that starts to happen that you allude to is the chunking of information, right? The ability to recognize, okay, here's the pattern here in this pick and roll. Um, they get, you got two guys in the corner. You got one guy in the other corner. They're setting the screen at this angle. I've seen this team do it 70 times. And so now I kind of have basically um, really quick chunks that I can go to and say, okay, my recognition immediately sees this as... Uh, I don't know, they're going to reject the screen or, you know, whatever example the play is, right? Uh, That is the thing that ultimately is coming upstream to give a player that great play, the quick processing reaction. And then all of us sit at home and go, wow, how did he do that? That's a great feel. I'm thinking of Draymond Green here uh, as I go through this sort of thought experiment in my head. Yeah, I I think that's critical to to good basketball play really. Um it's it's just so important and I you touched on it in in the point you just made. Um obviously a great way to enforce this is to do things kind of over and over again to some extent. Um but really I think kind of introducing a variety of experiences is really important. And I touched on this in the article too, but um kind of the more experiences you have to to pull from when you're recognizing those patterns you're going to be more easily able to chunk that information into digestible uh, digestible subsections, I guess I'd call it. Um, and if you can group those together, your brain will almost kind of just like take that information for granted, right? Like you've seen your example of rejecting the screen is great. Like you've seen the footwork before, you've seen the lean before. Right, right. Um, and you can just kind of know that, yeah, the move here is to reject the screen. Um, and research shows that I touched on the neurochemistry, which I think is kind of an underpinning of it. But the research seems to suggest that um, really these past experiences are what you're pulling off of to make make the that um, information acquisition a little more efficient, I guess. And chunking is the biggest way that I've seen so far. OK, here's here's the real question. I was going to save this for later, but we might as well get to it right now. It's the elephant in the room for me. What if you've seen examples. Um, So the idea of having prior experience and prior examples, certainly when I was in school, all the literature had the same kind of signals coming through. If you've seen it 400 times one way or 800 times one way, that's going to get grooved into your mind. That's going to create the fast track. What happens when you've only been trained on specific examples over and over and over again, how to do something, and then you get to the NBA and that's only 10% of what's happening. And 90% of the time teams are going counter to your examples and you have to, you have to kind of relearn it. You have to rewire the system. Um, 
what are your thoughts on that? And, and kind of like, you know, I think the lay, the lay summary of my question is, do you think we can improve feel for someone when they're 25 or 30 years old if they've been doing it one way for 10 years? Yeah, kind of overriding those those past experiences yeah. can be really tough. And I think that's part of why teams are kind of trending towards drafting guys who who kind of already have these skills or who have illustrated these skills um, in college or, or in European leagues or what have you. And it's because I think teams are struggling. I think everybody's really struggling with a, a way to kind of fast track this development. So, for example, I've, I, after I released this piece, I've had some conversations with coaches and questions that come up a lot are are really kind of just what you touched on. Like, it, sh- sure, we know that showing these examples a hundred times is eventually going to ingrain some kind of methodology in the brain, right? Um, the player is going to become familiar with the with the template, um, and they'll be able to process that template more quickly. That's great, but how do we fast track that? How do we make that faster than just running the same pick and roll coverage, you know, a hundred times, five hundred times, what have you? Um, and short answer, uh, kind of a cop out, I guess, is I'm not sure yet, um, but I do have uh, I do have, I think, an idea um, and it comes a little bit from a book called Range by I think it's David Epstein, right? Yep. Yeah, perfect. Um, so David Epstein talks in his book about kind of simpler problems and then wicked problems. And I think the more wicked problems you see, the greater the brain's malleability in terms of applying different templates to different solutions um, or as different solutions, I guess. Um, you know, I think a good example is cross sport. Um, maybe a player grew up playing another sport with similar spacing could be lacrosse, soccer, uh, whatever really. Um, and so they're familiar with that spacing and maybe their ability to develop the feel in basketball comes along a little more quickly because things they've seen in their past experience, um, can kind of inform their decisions in the new experience. And so that's kind of where I'm leaning is, just a, a great variety of, and I don't want to say like just throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks or anything like that, but offering a great variety of experiences to, to players as they're developing is really important. So in a basketball sense, I think it's critical to get every player on ball, like whether they're going to be a center in the NBA or not. Um, a lot of the times the players we see with the best success and the most unique skill sets in the NBA are players like Anthony Davis, where they had like just a crazy growth spurt. Anthony Davis was a guard in high school until he just grew to near seven feet tall and kind of picked up those big man skills. So in that sense, his past experience as a guard was really helpful to him because not only did he have more reps handling the ball and stuff like that, but he knows what it's like to be a guard on the court. And so as a big, he knows how to help those guards out. Yeah. And the the guy, I I love that example of Davis because so many players, I think with growth spurts have been afforded that luxury, but it really, you know, I think from a mechanistic process is coming back to this conversation we're having about feel and development, where if you're Scotty Pippen and you have your late growth spurt at Central Arkansas, literally when you start there, you might be a point guard. And by the time you leave, you might be playing center. And so to be able to run sort of the the variety of positions throughout your career gives you these different diverse experiences that you can then draw on. One of the guys I've been thinking about a lot with this lately uh, because of the video I did on on him for the Greatest Peak series is Hakeem Olajuwon. And Hakeem Olajuwon grew up playing many different sports, uh, handball, soccer, 
volleyball. I think he even had one more um, that he's referenced that was a smaller one uh, before basketball. He basically didn't really play basketball. It's unclear exactly how old he was when he started, but uh, essentially he went over and he was tall at that point and he gave it a try and he was 15 or 16 years old. And, you know, he started picking it up and learning. And I thought that had potential negative consequences in some areas. Like, for instance, his shot selection, a lot of his shots when he was younger, he was just very excited about catching the ball and instantly going into a move. And then in other areas, like his defensive instincts or his movement patterns or things like that, his ability to time and track the ball, that proprioception we talked about earlier. I mean, as far as I can tell, they're off the charts compared to normal NBA players. And I thought, you know, just him playing other sports had a huge effect on that neurological development. Yeah. And you touched on proprioception there, which I think is one of the biggest components of of the the advantages a player gets if they played other sports. So Hakeem is a great example because if you've played soccer, you know, the, the footwork as a big band, probably you probably pick it up quite a bit quicker. Um, it's, you're just more comfortable moving your feet in that way. You have better awareness of where your feet are in space. Um, so I can imagine developing post moves is a lot easier if you have that kind of example and kind of another more cliche one that you hear often, or at least I've heard in the past is, uh, the suggestion that football players take ballet classes when they're younger. And I think what they're getting at with that example is kind of develop that proprioception, you know, get comfortable with your footwork um, because it's something that's not really going to be touched on in your development unless you get really lucky with a coach who loves the little things like that. Um, but you can pick it up just from practicing other skills. Okay. So the other part of that question earlier that I asked is, you know, overriding um sort of what we might think of as bad basketball habits, right? Someone comes in and they've been habituated through a lot of experiences to do one thing. I like in the article how you looked at the counterexample where a lot of big men don't even get the opportunity to do that thing. But, you know, the flip side to that is that there are certain guards who have been taught or have the experiences ingrained in them of making decisions that we might think of as questionable. Um, where are you or what kind of research have you encountered on when you can kind of override or change those things? Is there an age that matters? Is there a number of reps? I know when I was in grad school, uh, I found some stuff on expertise that said, if you've done it one way for a long time, you're going to need a certain number of additional sort of experiences or repetitions to override it. So if you do it a thousand times one way, you might need 5,000 reps the other way to override that initial groove. Um, you have any insight or kind of uh, research you've seen that, that, you know, might address that? Yeah, what you read in grad school still seems to be the case from, from my cursory research on the topic. Um, it, it seems like, at least from a physical and mental, like skill acquisition component, and it obviously depends which of the great many skill acquisition and learning development theories you abide by. Um, but rewiring is really hard because not only are you are you learning a new way to do a skill, um, but you're also unlearning an old way to do a skill. And these two things are acting uh, antagonistically against each other, really, um, especially like a good example I like to think of is shooting mechanics, right? It's so hard to teach a guy a new way to shoot sometimes if the new way is very, very different than what he's doing the old, like in the past. Yes. Um, and so I think shooting coaches, um, have started to kind of move towards 
small refinements to an imperfect shooting uh, methodology as opposed to completely just throwing a new book at the at the player and telling them to, you know, like learn a completely new way to shoot the basketball. Um, PD Webb, a good buddy um, at Above the Break 3 on Twitter who does just amazing job uh, talking about just various ways of developing players, these absolutely effusive, wonderful scouting reports, um, recently wrote an intro to a shooting series he's doing. And I think the the points he made about making minor adjustments really kind of drive that home for me. I like making minor adjustments to a shooting methodology is just so much easier um, than wiring a completely new one in place of an old one. Um, It's tough um, because there's also a mentality component there, right? Um, Maybe a guy's used to being an on-ball player his whole youth career. And when he gets to the NBA, he's no longer the best ball handler on the team. Um, And so you kind of have to rewire that player to think differently about where they need to be on the court because a lot of their heuristics and a lot of their court mapping experience has been as the guy, the guy with the ball in hand and asking a player to get used to a different position in that sense, um, playing more off ball, uh, the various cues and skills that go into that. It can be really tough. So I think starting as young as possible is really good. But at the same time, you don't want to mess with stuff that's not broken um, at this that uh, in concert. So it's tough to balance those two things. I don't think anybody's done it perfectly, but I think minor adjustments in service of the greater goal are probably the way I lean, um, just especially once you get to the NBA level, because it's really hard to tell a guy who's gotten to the upper echelon of his profession. Hey, don't do that thing the way you've done it for 20 years. Yeah, and I, I'm I'm a huge proponent of that as well, be, precisely because of this conversation we're having, where if you take this neurological pathway, and I think I've talked about this in past episodes, and uh, I allude to it in uh, Thinking Basketball, the book, we're talking about a, a ballistic motion, like your brain needs to fire your muscles to basically let it fly, literally, literally and figuratively. It's not a slow kind of controlled movement pattern so you you've developed a groove and it's a great example um, that you're going to here in terms of rewiring right because that groove can be really really deep you may have been shooting this way for 20 straight years and to completely 100 percent overhaul someone's shot is in a way going to start them from the ground up neurologically but there's that additional component that you mentioned which is you're working against the mind's desire to fall back into that groove, fall back into that comfort zone that it's learned as sort of, hey, this is how I quote unquote, shoot a basketball. This feels right, no pun intended. Um, I always think about Reggie Miller as a great example, because I see him as someone who he was he was viewed as this guy with really weird shooting habits. And, and you know, the, the elbow, the, the arms are clicking together and the elbows are going out. But if you can control the motion and your feedback loop is consistent every time and he shot it in a way where his hand-eye coordination allows him to basically move the ball where he wants it to go over and over and over again, both in terms of depth and in terms of left-right accuracy, then you don't really need to change those mechanics. You could argue that the mechanics have a ceiling. And in that case, I don't know what that argument would be since he got up to like 92, 93% from the free throw line that seems to be about the the ceiling we've seen in the history of basketball. Um, we'll, we'll hold our breath for Steph Curry to see if he can top it. <laughs> um, but, you know, the point here is that the beauty of the shot and the sort of 
by the book mechanics of the shot, I think are less important. The physics and biomechanics are less important than this neural pathway that you get used to if you can control the ball. That's that's the idea. Yeah. And a, a factor of this that we haven't touched on yet is comfort and confidence, right? Like how comfortable are you with your shot? Well, really kind of determine how quick you can get it off. If you're second guessing your own shooting mechanic, you're introducing a hitch that's in your bad. processing speed yeah. that doesn't need to be there. Yeah, that, that, that's and then a problem. From a, exactly, yeah. And then from a confidence perspective, if you're rewiring a player to do something new and there's there's no reward system in place that's kind of like, you know, making them feel better about this rewiring, if they go from shooting 35% from three you change mechanics and all of a sudden they're shooting 28%. That's not going to feel good. And you're you're probably going to have a harder time internalizing those biomechanical feedback loops that allow you to get better at that skill and kind of internalize it and use it in a higher higher degree, higher efficiency way. So I think you mentioned Trey Young. Is that right? Catching passes? Yep. Yes. Um, he's a great example. He catches passes at deliberately funky angles going into his release. Steph Curry, if you also look at how he trains, he will try to get into his shot from a variety of angles. And this is the kind of thing that uh, so many of us who, regardless of the level we played at, there's a certain feel that you can kind of call back in your mind. You can dial it up right now as you listen. And the feel of the comfort of getting into your shot. Um, you know, if it's catching a pass, it's if it's off ball, where are your feet? Which direction do you like to go? Some players are more comfortable if you're right-handed. Uh, I always felt a little bit more comfortable as a right-handed guy going left um, and bringing it off my left hand off the floor. Steph Curry, Trey Young, what they're trying to do is create variety in their repetition. So they're not kind of creating a groove track that sits in one place they're training their mind to have kind of more diversity, if you will. Um, I think that's the way to go. And I don't know if we're getting too caught in the weeds on shooting here, but I think this also relates to the larger field discussion where you want to kind of train yourself to see as many patterns as possible for your brain and your nervous system to recognize at instantaneous game speed. Yeah, and I, I don't think we're getting too into the weeds on shooting at all because it, it's really a pretty illustrative example of just skill acquisition from start to finish. You start developing a skill in pretty much the most simple way. At least most skill acquisition theories seem to adhere by that. Um, so maybe you're you're just catching perfect passes in a gym. You're shooting spot-ups. Um, your feet are always the same. You receive the ball the same way all the time. And as you get more and more comfortable with that, and that because that motion becomes kind of subconscious and autonomous, you want to introduce challenges to those heuristics to build up the variety of experiences you have and therefore the amount of experiences you have to call back on when it comes to game speed. Um, and really, that that kind of helps. We we talk, we call it shooting versatility, um, but I think that that versatility of experience is helpful in really any category of skill in basketball. Yeah, agree. Um, any kind of specific basketball research. I know you mentioned a few in the article, so feel free to draw on those. But what what have you seen either in the literature like that or in practice that will um, kind of allow players to develop feel or, or indications of how you can expand your quote unquote feel here? I mean, we're talking about pattern recognition and processing speed and all this stuff. Um, talk a little bit more about what you've seen there. 
Yeah, the research, at least as far as I've seen so far, is actually pretty light. Um, I've been a little bit dissatisfied with kind of some of the ways that um, these, uh, I guess I'd call them like assessments of feel or skill in general, are done in a lab setting. Um, at the end of the day, it, it seems like lab researchers don't exactly have their finger on the pulse in terms of how to develop a good basketball player, um, which is, I guess, not not unexpected. Um, but I think what I've started leaning towards is creating situations that can be a, applied in a game context that maybe aren't exactly like a game. So a good a good example that I go back to, and they touch on this in um, various literature, but but uh, range is a good one, um, is kind of short-sighted scrimmages um, with weird or self-implemented rules. So, um, and you've seen this, I, some people have talked about this in terms of their own development when they were growing up. Maybe they were too good for the level they were playing at, and so um, the coach imposed specific restrictions on how that player could play the game. Um, and they have to compensate around those and develop a different way to beat those challenges. Um, so I think short-sighted scrimmages, um, stuff like two-on-two, three-on-three, where you're simplifying the problem that needs to be solved, but still offering an experience that can be utilized in a game setting, that's huge. Doing it at game speed once you feel comfortable with it, I think that's huge too. Um, and just kind of, I don't know, I, I think sometimes coaches and trainers are afraid to get weird with it to some extent. And um, it, it's very easy to roll out this. I don't want to like disparage the way coaching is done or anything because coaches do a great job and this is not at all my forte, but I think some willingness to get, uh, get a little weird with it and throw challenges at players and try new things that are maybe a little experimental or a little out there in terms of your, the drills you run or kind of the scrimmage rules that you put in place are really helpful. So when I was playing soccer um, growing up, I, I played pretty much my whole life. Um, the drills that I thought helped helped me develop my kind of feel for the game and my decision making in a game context were um, always drills where the coach would shorten the field. So a lot of the time we'd use maybe a quarter of the field um, for a full for a full game, basically. And the coach would impose different rules. So maybe you can only play the ball with your left foot. Uh, maybe you have exactly a second or less um, to make your decision. Otherwise, there's some, I don't know, some punishment or restriction involved. Um, I, I think kind of throwing those a little bit more chaotic, um, a little bit more wicked problems like Epstein talks about in his book at, at players while they're developing can kind of help to give them a greater variety of experiences to look back on. And while I haven't perfected any really great drill ideas or anything like that, that's kind of the next phase for me in terms of developing this philosophy. Mm, I like that. A, a term you may hear for this sort of entire concept that Evan's talking about here is scaffolding. Um, it's certainly talked about in education a lot, but the same thing applies here in trying to wire up the brain with these expert actions. If you dump someone in the middle of the NBA, five on five, 94 feet game speed, it's hard to process. But if you can create scaffolding that gets them from point A to point B, point B to point C, then you can develop over time these more kind of robust mechanisms to attack and then you can you know all of a sudden you're out in the game and you're playing five on five with the real rules and these things are coming more instinctively and naturally to you because hey you got in a pick and roll and you've done that little two-man or three-man drill in practice with the empty side uh, over and over and over again so i've actually seen some nba coaches in camps talk about that same concept break off into two on two three on three and try to just cut the court in half and work on it with half the court and then you can open up the other half of the court from there, things like that. 
Yeah, exactly. Kind of just building on to the heuristics that the brain is developing in terms of what a play looks like or what a different pick and roll scheme looks like or really just anything like that is really helpful for shortcutting those decisions when they have to be made for real. And I think uh, it's important to put an emphasis on kind of just being okay failing sometimes. Um, I think American sports culture in general, especially at younger ages, and it's a little bit dependent on the sport for sure. I think a lot of times American sports culture can be more focused on winning than it is on developing players and introducing that creativity element. Um, I know this gets touched on a lot in the soccer community is other countries, they're they're really not playing to win at a lower level. Um, they're playing to make creative decisions and develop players as players um, who are capable of making their own inventive and unique decisions because those are a lot harder to predict. Um, and so I think kind of just focusing on the idea that your drills are there to develop skills and abilities, um, patterns to look back on in the future as opposed to being there to help you win games will actually help you win games in the short term because you'll be developing better players. Yeah, I, I like that. That makes sense to me. Um, and it also has me thinking of of another question. Is feel and everything we're talking about here today, do you think that's more important for certain roles or skill sets? Is it the kind of thing that is extremely important for a spread pick and roll point guard versus a center? Or, you know, back to that original question, does it kind of have a place everywhere? And regardless of role or where where you're at in your career, um, sort of flexing this kind of muscle in in your development, in your practice, in your training is going to kind of help everyone equally. Do you, do you have a, a viewpoint on that? Yeah, I think feel is important for every role, but I would be remiss to say that feel is equally important for every player, although feel demonstrates itself in different ways for every role and every skill set. So the example you gave of a spread pick and roll point guard, yeah, they're going to be making high leverage decisions all the time, you know, at a usage of near 40% or something like that. The decisions you make are just going to have a huge impact on the game. Um, but there are decisions being made all over the court that you don't even need ball in hand for a good example, I think is the way wing players cut, uh, because the way that, that their patterns and their experience informs them to make those decisions is going to help create space on the court and other, in other dimensions. And especially at younger levels, like I think every player should be developed in very similar ways. Of course you can have skill or role specific drills and stuff like that. Um, but developing players as basketball players and not a point guard or a center, I think is critical because you just, you don't know what decisions they're going to be making at the next level. They could have a growth spurt. Um, they could be played in a unique scheme. So it's important for everyone. Um, at the NBA level, probably the guys who are making the most decisions on ball, you're going to see it illustrated the most, but if you watch closely and you don't just watch ball feel really demonstrates itself in every aspect of the game for every player. Well, piggybacking on something you said, at the beginning of the conversation, I think, and I've certainly seen this in in studying um, regular players, but certainly it comes out with the all-time greats. I think if you have a mental model of other players' kind of typical decisions, the the typical framework that they go through that's not your position, it tends to give you an advantage, especially on defense. So if you think about uh, a defensive big man who is either switching these days or might have to uh, be put in pick and roll responsibilities. Sometimes guards, when teams go small, small pick and roll, and they involve two guards in the pick and roll, well, the off-ball defender is usually a guard himself, and he's not used to playing that big man role. And so I am a proponent, I think, based on everything we've talked about today, of 
getting more generalized basketball concepts in your mind as you develop versus, well, I'm playing center and I'm going to learn, you know, these six things that the five position does when it comes to pick and roll and not really think about what guards are doing. If you think about what guards are doing, not only do you become interchangeable with them, but then you can kind of start to feel and read and anticipate what they do when you watch them try to succeed on defense. Yeah, and I think this is why such a huge emphasis is placed on film study for players, um, especially at the NBA level, because there's so much. Obviously, the body can only do so much on court in one day. Exhaustion is a thing for sure, um, especially when you're trying to keep yourself ready for you know actual games that matter. Um, and so film study is kind of a way to shortcut this in a sense, because you can you can watch any player on the court, get familiar with their decisions. And if you're capable of this to, at a high level, you can almost put yourself in their shoes um, decide how you'd react if you were in that position right. and kind of build onto your heuristics in that way. So film study is a really critical way to kind of, even if, even if your coach is intent on putting you in center positions because you're seven feet tall, that's great, but you can, you can watch film and kind of figure out how guards do things too. So, um, the on-court development is obviously critical too, but film really helps in that way because yeah, like you said, it's just a greater variety of information to pull from when it's time to make those decisions. Yeah. And I think we should also clarify that when you say react in those situations, sometimes that reaction is going to be anticipatory. Um, you don't get this in my experience. You only get this with really great players who have quote unquote great feel and have seen this over and over again, but you'll be watching the tape and instead of having a, a, a half second or a minor beat before their very, very quick reaction on defense or something, they almost recognize the pattern and they move early. And it, it looks like from the outside that we're talking about essentially anticipation, but that's still coming from the same framework that we've been talking about. It's still coming from reading the play, chunking the information, processing speed, and then moving your body toward it uh, to, to make whatever play you need to make. Yeah, exactly. I think um, anticipatory playmakers are really just doing these same things, but they're so far ahead for a variety of reasons, uh, chunking especially being one of them. They can almost take some of these these actions that are going to happen first, almost for granted. Um, obviously, you don't want to make too bold of assumptions, but they can take a little bit of that information for granted and start to think a step or two ahead. And so their behavior is predictive as opposed to maybe a playmaker who hasn't seen it as often or is processing it a little slower and therefore can only be reactive as opposed to acting a couple steps in advance. So we've talked quite a bit in the abstract. Um, Andrew Wiggins, can he develop? I mean, assuming that you're someone who who buys the idea that he doesn't have the greatest feel for the game um, because he seems to me, at, at least from what I've seen over the years, to be held up as uh, you know great athlete, great physical tools. Um, but of course, on both ends of the court, the decision making is the difference between him being you know around an all star in the NBA or something and a starter or a struggling starter or whatever it is at his point in his career. He goes to Golden State, and now the question is, um, however old he is at his point in his journey, you know. Can he develop tools that completely overhauls that part of his game? Can Warriors fans expect that kind of change? I think a complete overhaul of 
of his feel is probably out of the realm of possibility at this point, just given age and and position in the development curve. But I think we have seen Wiggins come along quite a bit in terms of some of those aspects of feel, especially on the defensive end of the end of the court. Um, yeah, his shot selection selection still leaves a bit to be desired for sure. Um, but I think his movement off ball, both on offense and on defense, has improved. Um, and we've seen this from other players too. Like I watch a lot of Bulls games, obviously. Um, the leap that Zach Levine has made this year as a playmaker has been astronomical. Um, and it's really not something I would have predicted, which is, it, I think that's something I love so much about basketball is your, your assumptions and your past experiences are constantly being challenged. So Levine was an on ball, super dominant playmaker, uh, pretty much his whole youth career, um, at UCLA, he was tasked with making a lot of decisions. Um, that that's, that's maintained as the case, um, in terms of his development track in the NBA so far. Uh, but you're finally starting to see some real dividends paid to that, um, to all the work they put in and all the opportunity and rep, reps he's gotten. Um, and Jalen Brown, I think, is another really good example of a guy who, coming into the draft, many considered him to be low feel in terms of uh, off-ball play, especially on defense. Um, and he's really improved on both ends. And it's nice when you can see the defensive um, acumen develop at the same time as that that passing uh, that passing acumen developed because I think it's a pretty pretty illustrative example of how feel works in concert on both ends of the court and being good at kind of these sub skills that we've talked about in terms of feel uh, doesn't just help you in one phase of play. Yeah, and and to your point earlier, there may be overlap. Wiggins may be a great example of overlap where if he's got some of that on ball feel that we take for granted because I do think. Despite the fact that he's, you know, 6'8 and has all these physical tools that people love, I mean, there have been flashes and moments where he just has great, you know, feel in the micro sense where he's taking an extra stride or um, he knows when to go with his first step. And maybe that's, you know, there's some translatability to these other larger macro feel concepts. Um, whether it's help defense or not, but certainly I feel like in the two Warriors games that I've tuned into this year, his man defense on ball seems to have kind of better reactivity and better, you know, for lack of a word, feel to it. So, so maybe going back to our earlier idea of like separating on ball and off, you know, team versus individual, maybe these guys are examples of where there's some overlap or, or translation between the neurological processes that are going on. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And that really kind of brings the topic full circle for me. Um, all the guys we've talked about so far were great on-ball players and a little bit suspect off-ball players um, when it came down to it. And you've seen all three guys kind of, I, they're never going to be world beaters in terms of their decision-making ability, but um, they're they're really meeting those thresholds for utility on, on and off-ball now. Um, and I think it goes to show that it's especially for guard players or like players who come into the league drafted as guards. You can't give up on them too early because while they may not be high field players when they start, there are so many reps that they're getting and so long that they have to come um, when they get into the league that really just offering more experiences for them to build their their knowledge base on is critical. And so making sure you don't just yank these guys from the game if they make a mistake, you know, um, give them the ability to play through it because those failures are going to be informative for future experiences. Yeah. And maybe this is a good place to to land on and conclude. I I'm not sure everyone can be a high field player. I'm interested in your um, sort of exposure or understanding of the latest literature on this because 
we've been talking a lot about improving feel and development and all these things, but at a certain point in theory, there are physical limitations and even potentially genetic limitations with each individual, each athlete. So you can improve your chunking, you can improve your visual processing, you can train in a way that supports all this stuff. But at the end of the day, there are some people that have better reflexes. There are some people that have a better capacity for, you know, visual processing and pattern recognition and things like that. Um, I'm trying to think of chest studies off the top of my head because there are more kind of chest studies on this and the capacity for different people to chunk huge amounts of spatial recognition in their mind at once. But I, I'm I'm thinking I just I want to clarify as far as I can tell, and, and you tell me if you know you see it differently, that all these things can be developed and your background plays an important role, but that doesn't mean that everyone's gonna get to the exact same place. It's still gonna be a distribution of traits where there are going to be outliers, and if those outliers have a high capacity and they've had great training over their career, then you're going to end up with a, you know, a Draymond Green or uh, a guy that used to play for Minnesota who's seven feet tall. I won't mention. <laughs> yeah, I, it's tough because I haven't really come to a conclusion on this, but I do think it's it's critical that we understand that there's a baseline that these guys are coming into the league at. And you can only build so much, I think, on that baseline. You know, how much time are you dedicating to developing court awareness and passing decision making um, as opposed to, I don't know, conditioning or, or strength and development in, that, in uh, more physical realms of, of play? Um, it, it, at the end of the day, it's a problem very similar to what normal people have. Um, how is your allocation of time determining what skills you can improve at? Um, so the baseline is critical, but I do think that every player can improve their feel over time. It's just a matter of before we really f- figure out a way to make that that acquisition of information hyper efficient. It's just it takes so long um, because not everybody picks things up at the same pace. And it, it just takes a long time to throw a lot of experiences at players. So I think that's why uh, teams have shifted more to to drafting for feel, um, at least more than they used to. And it's. I still put a pretty high emphasis on high field players when I scout. Um, not not because I don't think field can be developed for everyone, but because it's just great to work with a higher baseline in in, in that area. So let me put you on the spot before we wrap. Um, who, when you think of the NBA right now, who do you think of as players having the best field? I think Luka Doncic is the first example that comes to mind for me. Um, that one is probably a more offensive example. Um Draymond Green that we that you've mentioned um, so far in this is an excellent example who's I think a little bit more illustrative of the defensive side of feel. Um, I think the level of feel has really ticked up a lot uh, league wide though. Um, the average or maybe baseline level of feel that players come into the league with has really improved. So I think there's there's a testament there um, to the increased emphasis on decision making um, and just the ability to think the game um, in players at lower levels, and we're seeing that that come to bear uh, in the NBA. I agree. I'm going to mention um, LeBron James just so you don't get, Oh, of course you don't get nasty grams from people. Yeah, no, uh, I appreciate that. <laughs> but yeah, no, I think those are, those are, those are great examples um, all in their own right. Evan, this has been um, very fun, very fascinating. And uh, I appreciate you taking the time and having this discussion with us. 
Yeah, it's been great to talk it out, uh, especially with someone who comes from a pretty similar background to me. Um, thanks so much for having me on. I've, I've, it's been great. Yeah, the most important thing here is you've confirmed something I learned in graduate school is not yet outdated. And those are the best words you can hear when you go to graduate school. <laughs> this is still relevant. Yeah. As much as it seems like it, science can kind of move a little slow. So it's, it's good that some things that we learn in school haven't, haven't out, become outdated yet. Um, where can people find your work, check you out? If you got anything else you want to plug, now's the time. Yeah. So, uh, I guess to start, if you haven't read my article on, uh, the art and science of feel, you can find that on my blog, uh, easyhoops.co. Um, most of my writing I do for premium hoops at premiumhoops.org, And you can follow me on Twitter at easy underscore hoops. That's the, the letter E and the letter Z, right? Yep. Correct. Yep. Awesome. Evan, thanks so much. Thanks, Ben. Remember to check out that great deal at HelloFresh. It's 10 free meals by going to HelloFresh.com slash ThinkingBasketball10. HelloFresh.com slash ThinkingBasketball10. You can also directly support this podcast by signing up at Patreon.com slash ThinkingBasketball. That's where we've got all kinds of additional content. Um, During the Greatest Peak series, you get early access to the videos, depending on what tier you're in. We have an historical database of stats. We just this week started pushing out our live in-season stats. So if you're listening to a podcast and you hear a reference to estimates of shot creation or passer rating or things like that, that's all included in that with 2021 players now live. Once again, patreon.com slash thinking basketball if you're interested in checking that out. Otherwise, hope you enjoyed this one, a different kind of episode. You can let me know at LG35 on Twitter. Otherwise, I hope you are enjoying the unfolding and emerging NBA season. You are staying safe and that wherever you're listening out there, I hope you are having, of course, a great day. (laughs) 